Welcome to the Short Fuse podcast. James Baldwin once said that artists are here to disturb the peace. Through our Short Fuse conversations, we engage with artists, writers, musicians, and individuals who have a lens on what is happening in the liminal space we find ourselves working through. We reflect on and interpret the role of the arts in transforming and bringing our communities together. I am Elizabeth Howard, your host. When you were at the Guggenheim, that was a very special night. Thank you. Audience was just on their feet most of the time. It was just magical. I think the most important part for anyone who's not familiar with drag or drag performers is that we are performers. I don't understand how wearing giant lashes that reaches my eyebrow and pounds of makeup is somehow sexual to anyone. Because if you look at it, if you look at Mrs. Doubtfire, people love Mrs. Doubtfire, that movie. Robin Williams was a drag queen. He put on makeup, full-on breasts and hip bodysuits. I mean, granted, he dressed up as an old woman who's a housekeeper. But to, uh, to them, that wasn't sexual because he was dressing up as a comedian, as an old woman who takes care of children and whatever, whatnot. So in my mind, when you're making these kind of general ideas or when you don't look at us as performers, but you look at us as some kind of sexual object, what's going on in your head that you think me wearing a synthetic giant 10-pound wig <laughs> and yards and yards of fabric covering my body somehow equates to something sexual and you create laws against it. In this episode of The Short Fuse, I'm in conversation with Jasmine Rice LaBeja, the intentional godmother of the House of LaBeja. Jasmine is an iconic and respected entertainer. In 2017, she was one of the leading cast members in the documentary series Shade, Queens of New York City on Fusion Network. She's been a host of Dragged, which won a Shorty Award in Diversity and Inclusion for Verizon's network in the know. She was the face of New York City's 2020 Pride. Jasmine is a graduate of the Juilliard School and made her opera debut at The Shell with the San Diego Symphony as a special guest soloist with Megan Hilty, Rob Fisher conducting. This year, she was invited back to the Guggenheim Museum for a solo recital and she appeared at Lincoln Center. Jasmine, I love being with you. Feeling your energy. Yes. We met at the Guggenheim, and I want to talk about your solo performance there, beginning with your early childhood in Korea. But before we talk about your career, can we begin with your name? Perhaps you can share the history of the House of Labesia and how you decided on Jasmine Rice. Um, I became a LaBeja member in 2017. I went to my first ball in New York City called Coldest Winter Ever. So I always loved ballroom culture, even before it became super mainstream. Um, and I always wanted to be part of it because of the fabulosity and uh, the community aspect of it all. And I always wanted to be a LaBeja because LaBeja is the blueprint, they always say. We say that we are the royal house because we are the original house that ever existed. And every other house came from um, following the footsteps of Crystal LaBeja, who is the founder. Um, so I went to that ball and a bunch of the elders saw me, especially tiny LaBeja. May he rest in peace. He saw me <laughs> and he said, 
you look like a Labesia material. And I became a Labesia on the spot. And uh, I came up with my original drag name actually was Kimchi Chi because uh, I'm Korean and Kimchi is a traditional Korean dr- dish. And I'm extra spicy, so I had an extra chi. <laughs> a girl named Kim Chi got on RuPaul's Drag Race, who, are in, who is, of course, more famous than I am. And we're good friends. So I was like, let me change my name so I don't get confused. And my friends, I was like, well, what about Jasmine Rice? It's a food item as well. You're pretty. Jasmine's name is pretty. And it's a cute little pun. And that's how I came with Jasmine Rice. Uh, <laughs> I wish there was more of an exciting story, but there really isn't. Oh, no, it is. It's great. I've read many memoirs. Mm -hmm. I was enchanted watching and listening to your solo performance at the Guggenheim. It was a lyrical memoir. You talked about growing up in Korea, moving to the United States, and eventually being accepted at Juilliard. What was it like growing up in one culture and then moving to a completely new one? There was definitely a culture shock. When I grew up in Korea, I grew up in the countryside. And then later on for my education, I moved to the capital, Seoul, to attend Yewon Art School and then Yego Arts High School. It was definitely a culture shock because, not to get too problematic, but I didn't know so much racism existed in a land because when you grow up in Korea, everyone is Asian. Like, there are not a lot of foreigners there. I think that was one of the biggest culture shock for sure. I think I was always a free spirit. Even in Korea, I love to express myself. I didn't really care what anyone else thought of me because <laughs> I, really, I didn't really look at anyone else. I was in my own fantasy world. I was always in my own bubble. So it never really bothered me. I think another culture shock was when I came to U- US, I was in a way somewhat celebrated because of that creativity and rambunctious personality that I have. Korea, it is still very conservative. Most TV channels won't allow any tattoos to be shown. So all the tattoos need to be covered. There's no cigarette smoking in any of the TV show programs or dramas and stuff like that. It's still a very conservative country. Me being this loud and out and proud, coming to U.S., that was another culture shock. William Faulkner knew early on that he wanted to be a writer. Robert Frost knew as a young man that he wanted to be a poet. Did you know that you wanted to perform and be a singer at a very young age? I don't know if I knew that I wanted to be a singer, but I loved attention. I (laughs) did anything to be on stage. I love, love, love being on stage. I don't even know if I actually wanted to become a singer. I knew that I wanted to do something creative and perform for the masses. I think being a singer kind of fell on my lap. I guess I was just blessed with the voice. But funny story, not to go on a sidetrack, I was horrible student in school. I was so, 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 so. I was below average on every single test. And that's when one of my mom's friends suggested, why don't you try to let Jasmine go to like an art school where (laughs) academia (laughs) isn't the main focus. For any, any other instrument, you have to start when you were like three or four or five or six, such as like violin or piano, especially in Korea. The parents make you start those instruments very early on. 
only thing you could kind of start this late is singing. And then that's how I really got into singing. But I guess it's a blessing in disguise. (laughs) You're accepted at Juilliard and you studied opera and performance. How did you find fitting into Juilliard? That was another culture shock. There are a lot of shocks in my life. When I went to Juilliard, I didn't know it was going to be somewhat so political in a way. I thought as long as you sang well and you performed well and you did everything that a singer should as an opera singer, because my dream and my goal when I looked at idols was like Leontine Price, Maria Callas, Renee Fleming, Pavarotti, and all those people, they were amazing singers. I just had to be an amazing singer, but that was not the case at Juilliard. It gave me an incredible education and the resources that they have is just amazing. I mean, my class um, was nine people. There were only nine vocalists in my year, whereas other schools, there are minimum 40 to 100 students per year for vocalists. So the attention that we got and, and the individual lessons and coachings that we got was just like uncomparable compared to other schools. So that was amazing. But there were a lot of... I guess I don't necessarily fit in anywhere technically. And I stand out because I don't like to conform to this cookie cutter of a formula. When I went to that school, you had to be proper and students who were button-down shirts and a blazer and jeans and would show up to class looking like that. I was like, that is so pretentious. As you can see, I'm very loud. I like to be relaxed and have fun. I only get on stage to shine when I'm on stage. I don't have to be that 365 days out of the year, 24-7. And I think that's what Juilliard was kind of asking. I mean, I got into Juilliard, but because of my talent and my singing, but the other side was a little... (laughs) Did you decide there that you would be a drag queen, that you would perform in drag? I don't know if I yeah, I don't know if I necessarily decided that I want to be a, become a drag queen there, but I honestly think that I fell in love with opera because I didn't I don't think I knew what drag was even back then. I fell in love with opera because of the grand theater, the costume, the wigs, the music, the drama, the 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 acting and the fantasy of it all. And it went in hand in hand because I, when I was a kid, I used to love dressing up in my mother's clothes would put comfort around me like it's a giant mink coat and wear my mother's high heels, put a bed cover on top of my head, thinking that it's a giant wig that's 60 inches long or whatever, whatnot. I always used to love dress up. And I think that's why I fell in love with opera. I started off as a young drag queen, then fell in love with opera because opera was so similar to drag queens. And then I came back to being a full-time drag queen. <laughs> I would say they are very similar. Did your professors at Juilliard support you? Most of the teachers supported me. I don't know if they necessarily supported my drag because if you look back until a couple of years ago, I mean, RuPaul's Drag Race is going on its 15th season, but until like maybe three or four or five years ago, it wasn't really that mainstream. People didn't really know what drag was at the time still. They thought that it was like, oh, taboo thing a man dressing up as a woman, like, what is that? But now drag has become so mainstream, it is everywhere, and it, 
its own way an art form and they don't see it as taboo. So I think even when I went to the Juilliard school, it was still somewhat of a taboo because, I mean, Juilliard is very prestigious, of course, and we're doing classical music there. I think if I was performing pop or something like that, maybe it would have been a little bit more accepted, but an opera singer trying to be a drag queen, no. (laughs) The people who actually really accepted me was the wig and makeup department because I used to do work study while I was going to Juilliard School, which is a scholarship where you work to pay off some of the tuition. So I used to work at the wig and makeup department and the girls there just loved everything about me. There is so much creative energy in your performances. And you've told me that you design and make your costumes, you do your own makeup, you do your hair, and your gowns are just gorgeous. I mean, you could also become a fashion designer. I don't know if I'm necessarily that creative. I I think I feel like I like the feeling of accomplishment, the fact that I could say I did everything head to toe. I love being my own producer, my own director, my own choreographer, my own stylist, and my own performer. I think I like the aspect of that. I don't know if I actually have that much creativity to design. Most of my gowns are kind of rip-offs of other people's. <laughs> I do think that it also takes creativity to knock off someone else's design. <laughs> it does. It does. Yeah. Are you continuing to pursue a career in opera? Because I can see you performing. There's no reason why you can't do both, is there? I think opera world is a little bit behind. I mean, they say musical theater even is still behind in typecasting and stuff like that. And I think opera is there. I mean, opera is definitely not typecasting. I mean, there's so many shapes and colors and people that perform on opera stages of a bunch of different roles. But in certain ways, I mean... Like I said before, drag has become mainstream just recently. I think people are still kind of unsure of where drag queens and drag artists in general all fit in in the performance aspect. I think it would be fabulous to have me on an opera stage. I think it, the production will be spectacular. <laughs> uh, that's just my opinion. But to be quite honest, to become an opera singer, I am performing um, actually this Saturday at Lincoln Center again for a little Asian queer festival. Being an opera singer is very, very stressful. You have to watch how what you eat. You have to be careful when you go out so you don't get sick and your vocal health. And it's stressful in a way. To combine drag with opera is another burden. I would love to do both on stage. I I just love being on stage. Actually, my friend Monet Exchange, she made her opera debut. I forget what it was, where it was. I think it was maybe Portland Opera or somewhere like that. She performed in drag. So I think the doors are slowly opening up for people like us. Well, it's it's kind of ironic because historically women were restricted from performing on the stage in Japan, early Greek dramas on the English stage. The norm was male performers and drag seems to have developed naturally because men were cross-dressing to, to fill these roles. I think the problem and the issue usually comes from people sexualizing drag queens mm-hmm. and people Because back in the day, like those artists who were on stage doing female roles, they were not 
sexualized. They were like, oh, they're a performer. But when you put drag or drag queen behind it, it automatically steers into most people who don't know the culture or who are not familiar with it. It's like, oh, it's guys who like dressing up as women, who want to be women, or they're trying to trick men or anything like that. So that's where I think usually the hesitant comes from. But if you get to really know the art form of drag, it's an incredible art form. And it takes so much effort and so much time to become a drag queen and to put everything on. I think that's where the hesitancy comes from. Because we're not really that different from any other performers on stage. Because if you look at any other performer, they all wear makeup, they all wear costumes, they all wear wigs. Exactly. What if we were to eliminate gender identity? You know, that, what if we were to break through the institutional boundaries that we've created? Because there are cultures, there have been in the past, there are, that, that, don't, that don't define gender so narrowly with all the restrictions that we seem to have placed on gender in our contemporary American society. I think it's so interesting because, I mean, going back to opera, there are a bunch of mezzo-soprano roles that are supposed to be for countertenors, where men were castrated Mm -hmm. to keep their young, high voice, and they would sing roles like Cherubino or Teenage Boys in an opera role. But now they're all sung by females who are mezzo-sopranos, and they come out as males. So I guess, in a way, they're drag kings. But again, it's, it's the same issue with not to, again, segue, with a lot of trans issues. It's never an issue about being a trans man, but it's always an issue when it becomes being a trans woman. It's always an issue when it becomes a drag queen, a man dressing up as a woman, or someone who was biologically born male dressing up as female or gender fluid or whatever, whatnot. That's always the issue. And I don't really know where that issue comes from. And I think it's kind of stupid. (laughs) Because why restrict our lives? And I, I agree that there should be basic, somewhat of a social construct that we abide by. There needs to be some, some kind of social construct. I agree, but I don't think it's necessarily like set in stone. There are some gray areas. It's also a very nuanced conversation. It's not that black and white. And I think we're limiting ourselves by doing that. It's difficult for me to keep up with the lawmakers who are advancing and passing bills that take direct aim at drag performers and and place restrictions on those who are LGBTQ. And it's so clear that the legislation is discriminatory and unconstitutional. I read recently that the American Civil Liberties Union is currently tracking nearly 500 anti-LGBTQ bills in the United States. Many of them would ban or censor performances like drag shows. However, I also read an article in a legal publication recently that this writer posited that the recent LGBTQ rights have proven difficult to roll back. And in fact, an Arkansas federal judge struck down the state's new law against gender transition care in June of this year. Because drag is enmeshed in our American culture. You look back at Marilyn Monroe and and even what a lot of the, I mean, we could go through the list of 
performers, even Mick Jagger, uh, Beyonce. I mean, all of them, they, they really are on the line. They're performing possibly in their own sex, set within their sexual identity. The, the performances aren't necessarily different. I think it's so interesting because most of those people who are making these laws have never been to a drag show or never even been around drag queens. They see a picture and they automatically make an assumption of what it is and they decide to make a law about it prohibiting the act. It's just so weird. Like, when they made legislation in Tennessee and stuff like that, drag um, banning drag queens, performing in front of children and using bathrooms or getting gender-affirming care. Let me just say, like, most... Uh, I might have the statistics wrong, but people who identify as trans is maybe 0.1% of this country. 0.1%. 99.99% of the people in this country do not identify. I don't understand why people are so concentrating on this 0.1% of the population who has no impact in their lives. If you don't want to go see a drag show, don't go see a drag show. It's not like drag queens are <laughs> walking into public high schools or middle school or elementary schools and just performing for them forcefully and saying, you have to watch me perform. Most of those uh, performances happen by invitation or because their parents are taking those children or, I don't know, it's just, it's very hard to comprehend where all these legislation is coming from because they they always use also use words like oh they're trying to spread the agenda or they're grooming children i was like i've been groomed to be a straight heterosexual man all my life so obviously you can't convince anyone that they're gay you can't convince anyone that they're straight you can't convince anyone that they're male or female or whatever whatnot they're using it to gain votes so they could stay in office to rally up people who are radicalized and in a way uneducated about certain subjects. I, I was really quite surprised, Jasmine, when I attended the drag brunch. Yes. And I, I thought it's New York. Which is, I just want to say it's 21 and over, just letting everyone know. It's New York City. It's in the theater district, noon on a Saturday. I expected kind of a diverse crowd. It was all white, all white, all young, most from out of town. And a lot, I, I loved your comment. When most you, women. Yeah, <laughs> I, you, you, I asked, where, where are they from? And someone said, I don't know, South Carolina. I said, oh, yes, I can't go to the bathroom there. <laughs> um, but I, I looked around and... I thought, I know some of the parents of these young people because they were all, I was one of the older people, I think, in the room. I thought their parents are probably supporting legislation in some of these places. And you just had, that was, it was so much fun. Singing and lip syncing. And you have on more clothes than most people. I mean, I look at some women walking down the street. Mm -hmm. They have on things that, you know, that, that are short and reveal everything. And I think, you it on a gown, <laughs> you know, that with sleeves. That, 
and your dialogue and your your interaction with the audience just brought everybody together. Yeah, but so that's why I'm saying like most of these people who are creating this legislation, they've never even interacted with a drag queen or a drag artist or been to a drag performance. So like when I see people picket or boycott outside of like drag queen story hour, they're, I'm just like, they are literally in character costume. They're literally in full head to toe Disney costumes and layers and makeups and, and all that stuff. Yet you are here saying, oh, they're trying to groom them. They're sexualizing them. They're pedophiles. And I was like, it doesn't make, it, it just, it just doesn't really make sense yeah, because to me. It's and just like going to Disney world. So, I mean, what's the difference when you see a child, you see a character dressed up as, I don't know, you know, Mickey Mouse or something? There really isn't. I mean, I mean, I say this all the time because I've been in a debate with a lot of people about these kind of issues. Like, go to a football game and the cheerleaders are wearing less clothing than the majority of the people in the stadium. If you're really trying to censor kids and like not be, they're saying that drag queens are hypersexualized and everything is about sexual. And it can be in a way if you go to certain performances. But not every drag artist is like that. Like I said before, there are, there are also differences between every artist. For example, Barbara Streisand as a singer is very different from Cardi B, who is also a musician. Like those two people can exist hand in hand. And Cardi B is literally everywhere twerking her ass and living her life and showing her, you know, fantasy and all that. Same thing with Barbara Streisand. I mean, I think it's also up to the parents to decide what, the children gets to see and don't get to see or what as an adult, what you want to consume and what you don't want to consume. So it's kind of crazy for me to make a law prohibiting performers to perform in front of anywhere or constrict them and saying you can't perform in this district or that district. I don't understand why the performers are getting punished when we are not the ones driving the children or the audience to our shows. Our, sh- our job is just to be on stage and entertain people. I always say I have never performed in a locked door hall. The door is wide open. And if you don't want to see me perform, you could walk out that door. Like it is your right to sit there and watch me perform or not watch me perform. So creating these laws and prohibiting and, and um, basically putting the pressure on artists, I think is crazy because there are no laws saying that Cardi B can perform near a school district or visit schools or perform near a school. Where, where, where are those laws? Where are those laws that Nicki Minaj cannot perform more? Someone like Sam Smith or someone, anyone who does pro- provocative performances. I don't know why these legislations are there. It's just waste of, there are bigger issues like global warming and gun laws. Well, but they're just trying to distract us. Yeah, Wanda Sykes make the best joke. Drag queens are not the problem. Unless you can find me an example of a drag queen walking into school and beating a kid to death with a killer mocking bar <laughs> with a banned book. Don't say that there are issues. There, there, there's literally no statistics on any kind of harm that drag queens have caused in society. Have you gone back to... Korea to perform? Have you performed as a drag queen there? I have performed as a drag queen in Korea before. I mean, drag honestly is basically like exploding everywhere because I think also being a drag queen, it makes you, 
it makes you experience something that you normally would not experience. You get to kind of express who you are and what you want to be and how you want to be perceived as. RuPaul says it all the time, and I definitely agree with RuPaul. You should always try drag in any kind of sense, whether, whether you put on a wig or you don't want to put on a wig, or drag is such a broad spectrum now. You could call anyone a drag queen and experience that and really express yourself. I think a lot of those anti-LGBTQIA plus laws are coming from people who are bundled up and not being able to express it. So they're projecting their insecurity and hate on the people that they kind of identify with in a way or want to express like them. Because I'm living my life authentically wherever I go. What was it Rule Paul said? You're born naked and the rest is drag? Yeah. Shakespeare or one of his ghostwriters said, all the world's a stage and everyone upon it is a cross-dresser. For sure. Like, it's being a drag queen is a job. I mean, there are people... I think people also have this, again, people who are making these laws and making these assumptions, they have it confused. I do not live my life as a drag queen 365 days out of the year, 24-7. I do not go to bed in full makeup and wig and tights and heels and nails and whatever, whatnot. I only put those things on to go on stage. Now, there are definitely people who live their life as a cross-dresser, which is fine, but I think it's just... People who are not knowledgeable about the issues trying to make laws, they think that drag queens are transgendered people, trans trans people are also drag queens, and drag queens are also uh, people who are transvestites, and they don't even know the terms that they're talking of, and they're just creating blanket statements and turning it into law. And I think that's where the big problem comes from. Because if they were really concerned about children, there are a lot of men in dresses that are part of a certain religion that really grooms kids and do hor- horrific things that is against the law. So I don't know. It's just wild to me. Well, we have carnivals, pantomimes, theaters, musicians, performers. We all like to dress up. And it, it seems like a completely normal activity. I think if we can focus on drag as art, which is, you know, that art is, after all, meant to help us reflect our own subliminal desires. And it involves creativity, imagination, technical proficiency, beauty, emotional power, and conceptual ideas. And these are all words that I would use, Jasmine, to describe one of your performances. Oh, thank you. Uh, they're, they're so wonderful. I can't thank wait to you. see one again. Jasmine, how can people find you in clubs and occasionally on tour, follow you on Instagram? All of my social media handles are exactly the same. It's at Jasmine Rice NYC. That is spelled just like the food, J-A-S-M-I-N-E-R-I-C-E-N-Y-C. Well, I hope to see you again at a performance very soon. Jasmine, thank you. I've loved this conversation with you. Thank you. I would like to thank Duke Dang, the executive director of the Works in Process program, the introduction to Jasmine Rice. I would like to thank Alex Waters, our technical producer, for his commitment to the Short Fuse, and Bill Marks at the Arts Fuse for his financial support. The Short Fuse can be found through the Arts Fuse 
the online journal of arts commentary and criticism, and through Apple, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. If you have enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe. You can support us through the Short Fuse podcast website. A link is in the episode notes. Follow us on Instagram and through LinkedIn. Join us next time when we engage, explore, and ask questions.